We'll be in Mark chapter 10 today. So as you're finding your place there, um, the past couple of weeks we've been looking uh, in Luke chapter 10 actually at the, the story of the Good Samaritan last week in particular and talking about the, the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates a neighborly kind of love. Um, in, in Luke's gospel in chapter 10, there's a lawyer that comes to him and says, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he says, well, I, I think I need to love God and I need to love neighbor. And Jesus says, that's right. That's exactly what you need to do. Now go and do it. Uh, and the man immediately finds himself um, stacked up against that law as simple as it is. He finds himself falling short. And he seeks to justify himself and he says, well, in his mind, maybe he thinks, I think I got this God thing figured out, but we really need to qualify who my neighbor is or I might be in trouble. And so he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, And we talked about that last week. And what we described is the love that the Good Samaritan showed is it's the the description was it's, it's messy. You know, the Good Samaritan was willing to get into that guy's mess. That it was costly. He, he used his own resources to be a blessing to the man who was hurt. Um, he inconvenienced himself. You know, he stayed a whole night with him, taking care of him at the hotel. And uh, it was risky. If you remember, he, he gave the, the innkeeper basically a, a blank check and said, just spend whatever you need to make sure this guy gets back on his feet. And when, when I come back, I'll make sure... The debt is paid. So the love of the good Samaritan for his neighbor is crazy. What we talked about last week is that it's it's the kind of love that we we cannot attain. And then we look to the hope of Jesus Christ. Because the point of that parable is not just to tell us about a kind of love that we in and of ourselves can't offer. But the point of the parable is is to say, but Jesus is the better neighbor. He's the better good Samaritan. He's the better neighbor love. Today we're going to look at that in a little bit different way in Mark's gospel in chapter 10. What we see in the good Samaritan is a beautiful picture of love, and we see a law that we can't keep. But we also see how these things point to Christ as the perfect fulfillment of both the law and and perfect love. So what I want to do today is just steer our thoughts toward Christ, hold him up as the one who has done everything perfectly and see that he's not only our example of how we should live, but he's our source. He's our source. And after we identify that, all I want to say then is that Jesus is a different kind of king. That's what we're going to look at in Luke's gospel uh, or in Mark's gospel, chapter 10. So if you will, you found your place in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Will you stand with me? We're just going to read 10 verses together and then talk about Jesus Christ as a servant king. Jesus Christ, the servant king. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, listen to this question. Or this statement, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? 
And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them all to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles... Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whatever or whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord Jesus, we want to fix our eyes on you for these next few minutes. And I just pray, God, that you open this text, this scripture, open the eyes of our hearts to understand. Not just to see black and white words on a page, but to understand the deeper things you want to teach us. And then, God, would you help us to live it out? Lord, would you use your word to transform our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So, James and John, these are sons of Zebedee. They began their journey following Jesus by uh, leaving their fishing boat. And uh, if you remember the story earlier in John's gospel, they, they saw Jesus as a way out of the career path that was sort of chosen for them. Um, Jesus said, come and follow me. And they, they left their uh, fishing nets and their father. When you read the scriptures, what it says, they left their nets and their father, Zebedee, and followed Jesus. They, they saw Jesus as their way out. And we see in this text, they see him as their way up. You, you see where I'm going with this? So when they come to Jesus, they come to him asking him for something with great boldness. It uh, kind of reminds me of my kids. I can't get this mic to sit right today. It reminds me of my children. This question, they come to him. They said, uh, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, I don't know if your kids ever come to you and say, um, daddy, just say yes. And you go, what, uh, what is it that you want me to do? Just say yes, and then I'll tell you. Well, no, that's not quite how it works. <laughs> they want to catch you in a moment of weakness where you kind of sign that check before they actually write, you know, how much it's for. Uh, we want to do something, just say yes. Mm. Now, what do you want me to do for you? It's a very, really, honestly, a very immature way. Uh, it's a childish way, right? That's the way children ask for things. Tell me yes, and then I'll tell you what I want. And that's not the way it works with Jesus either. He, he responds, what, what do you want me to do for you? And so then they say, well, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your 
glory. So let's just kind of pick that apart for a second. Here's what they see in Jesus. They see a king. They see someone who's going to his throne. And what they want to say to him is, would you... I mean, I'm imagining the, the circumstance. We've got all 12 disciples here, and James and John kind of pull Jesus to the side, and they go, hey, man, um, we want you to do whatever we ask. And maybe they're remembering back to when Jesus said... Um, if you ask anything in my name, whatever you ask, I'll give it. Maybe they're remembering that. And so they come to Jesus. We, we're, we're, we're cashing in on that promise. We, uh, we really want you to put us at your right and your left. And the crazy thing is when you read Matthew's gospel, you, Matthew actually adds that their mother was there. All right. They brought their mom to this conversation. And mom actually shows up and she's like, I think the boys are right, Jesus. I think you ought to, you know, you ought to, you ought to put them right by you. And so mom is, is all in on this conversation. Well, Jesus kind of sees right through it. And he sees that they're not just... Uh, he doesn't criticize them for praying with boldness. That's, that's kind of full of faith, you know? The idea that they would see Jesus as the future king and come to him and, and, and presume this guy can give us whatever we ask. That's bold. It's a bold way of praying. He doesn't attack that. But what he does say, see is that they're praying selfishly. They're asking him for um, self-promotion. And, and as we read through the text, what we find out is um, pride, which is what's at the bottom of this. Pride and ignorance are good friends. You know, they come in their pride and they say, Jesus, we want you to put us at your right hand and at your left hand when you enter into your kingdom. When you're in your glory, we want to be right there with you. But Jesus says, his next statement is, you don't know what you're asking. So what we discover here is that pride usually goes hand in hand with ignorance. They didn't know that the path to the throne was not going to be easy. In fact, Jesus' next question is, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Let's just make clear what that is. When Jesus talks about the cup, he's not talking about coffee. He's not talking about uh, water. He's talking specifically about the cup of the judgment of God, the wrath of God. When you read through the scriptures, the cup he's talking about is the wrath of God that is to be poured out over the sins of men. So Jesus is saying, are you able to drink the cup of the wrath of God? Because that's what I'm going to drink. On the cross, the way to my throne is through suffering the wrath of Almighty God. Are you able? And what do they say? We are able. <laughs> These guys, the pride and ignorance and obviously foolishness go hand in hand, right? They're, they're so blinded by their pride and their selfish ambition that they can't even see that the path to the throne is riddled with incredible suffering. Jesus says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism? So this is the suffering of persecution. This is the pain that earthly he's going to endure. So we've got the wrath of God. So we've got the suffering from, from heaven. And then the suffering on earth. The baptism on earth of men beating him. Pulling the hair out of his beard. The lashings. Then the crown of thorns. Then obviously the crucifixion. And Jesus says, are you, are you able to be 
baptized with that kind of baptism. And the guys say, yeah, we're able. They're just so blinded by their uh, pursuit to go up that they, their ignorance and their pride are, are good friends. So they, they're asking for personal promotion. They're wanting position and power and authority. Um, self-promotion is of this world. Self-denial is what Jesus says is of his world. Remember Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him what? Do you remember? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you want to follow me, just uh, let's just self-promote. Let's self-promote ourselves the way up. Jesus actually is telling the boys, the guys here, that, hey, the way up is actually down. And that's what we're going to dig into in just a moment. Self-promotion is of this world. It's not of Jesus' kingdom. Pride, self-promotion are not good for the team. Look at what happens immediately right here. Um, James and John, you know, they've, they've been in on some secret conversations Jesus has pulled Peter, James, and John to the side to sort of do some side teaching to the guys that he knows are going to be leading the charge in the days ahead. Even even he took them up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they've seen, Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus transfigured into who he is, into displaying his glory, who he really is. Not just a man, but you know, he floated up, his clothes turned white, shining, this voice came out of the sky. That moment, they saw it. You might can imagine why. I mean, they've been close enough to Jesus. You might can imagine why they would pull up close and say, hey, when you, uh, when you get in your kingdom, why don't you put us on the right and on the left? You could imagine they thought they were on the insider track to riding Jesus' coattails to glory. Jesus paints a picture of two contrasting kingdoms. Just before that, though, um, what we see is that the team is disturbed. The disciples are disturbed. Look in verse 41. It says, when the other ten, when the ten heard what James and John were saying, they began to be indignant at James and John. Indignant. Um, It's a word we don't use very often. It's a word not used very often in the Greek, but it really just means mad. These boys are just mad. And they're mad for, I think, a couple of reasons. One, they feel pushed down because these two guys elevated themselves. Can anybody agree with me and say that when you try to self-promote, you usually stand on the shoulders of those nearest you and push them down? I'm going to try to get myself to go up. Let me push these guys down. So these disciples feel pushed down. That's reason one. And reason two is because they have the same seed of pride in their own hearts. So they feel pushed down. And the reason that's painful is because they also are wanting to self-promote. There's this envy. Like, wait a minute. What do you mean you are asking to be at the right hand or the left hand? You might can hear Peter going, hey, I don't care who's at the left, but I'm at the right. I promise you. When we get in glory, it's going to be me at the right. Who else walked on water? Okay. You can hear Peter. That's just in his heart, right? They don't want to tell us. 
that's in our hearts. And this is a big reason why this is a repeated theme. If, if we're reading through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see that this is the third time in two chapters that Jesus has had this teaching. Grab your Bibles, if you will. I want you to look in chapter 9. Look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you guys discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That's pretty significant, right? You'd think they would have got it. Nope. Look in uh, Mark 10. Look in verse 31. Jesus has just told or had an encounter with the rich young ruler. And when he gets to the very end of it, the disciples are like, well, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says in verse 27, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And he goes on down doing some teaching. Verse 31, he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then we have the encounter that we're reading, which is just, you know, moments later. And then if we keep reading, we find that even at the Last Supper, when they're having the Last Supper, there's an argument that breaks out about who's the greatest. And Jesus has to say it again. Boys, the first will be last. The last will be first. If anyone wants to be the greatest, let him be the servant, the slave of all. And in that moment, Jesus gets up, puts on a towel, grabs a basin, and washes the feet of the disciples who were just arguing about who's the greatest. This is a common teaching. And what Jesus is doing for us is he's contrasting two kingdoms. There's an earthly kingdom that we all live in. And we actually celebrate this self-promotion kind of mentality. We celebrate it in all, here. I mean, a, a guy who's driven and he just wants to succeed and want to excel. Nothing terribly, terribly wrong with that except for when it's rooted in seeds of pride. And it's pushing down others to get what he wants. There's that kingdom. Jesus describes these two kingdoms this way. He says in chapter 10, verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Two, two words that are repeated. Or one word that's repeated and it's this word. Over. Over. Do you see that in the text? It says, their great ones, well, the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. There's this idea in the earthly kingdom about being over people, over them. And what Jesus is going to say is, in my kingdom, it's not that way. And so he says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So under, right? And whoever would be first must be slave of all. 
And then Jesus finishes this description of a greater kingdom, a contrasting kingdom, the one for which he's going to be the king. He finishes that description with himself as the prime example. And he says, for even, that word even means this explanation is continuing with me, is the prime example, for even the Son of Man came not to be served. Even I, the king of this kingdom, did not come to be over but to serve. This is a servant king like no other. You know, we don't, we're not familiar with kingdoms very much, but um, when we read of kingdoms and kings, we read typically of a king who sends his people out to fight his battles and his people die for his conquest. Does that sound like a familiar story? A king sends his warriors to go and fight so that he can conquer and attain more for his kingdom. But we have a king who doesn't send his people to fight. Our king goes to battle. And our king Jesus went to battle on the cross and fought and won the victory. He's not a king who sends his people to shed their blood for the victory. He sends his son. God sent his son Jesus To come and fight. So when we look at his kingdom, for look at verse 45. This is sort of the key verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, he's pushing against our concepts of leadership and authority. Pushing against it. He's headed to the throne as the king. That assumption of these disciples is correct, but they don't know the path to the throne of this kind of kingdom. It's suffering. It's hardship. It's service. What Jesus is saying is the way up is down. The way to go higher is to be the one that goes low. The way to lead is to serve. That's what Jesus is saying. Then he uses himself as a prime example. Now, lots of leaders... Lots of world leaders could say things like this. I mean, I'm I'm listening to uh, these words. The way up is down. The way to go higher is to go low. The way to lead is to serve. And I'm thinking, well, Muhammad could have said that. Or Gandhi could have said that. Gandhi's great with leadership. I mean, he has lots of followers, right? And he spoke a lot of really some cool words of wisdom. Quotable, very tweetable. Gandhi, Muhammad, other, other religious leaders could have said these things. But it's the next statement that sets Jesus apart. And here it is. Gave his life as a ransom for many. There is no other leader who gave his life as the ransom for many. So let's just pick that apart for a moment. Jesus gave his life. That literally means he died, right, as a ransom. So let's focus on the word ransom. I'm going to do this quickly. This is super important. So if you've zoned out, like zone in right here, okay? We hear the word ransom typically talking about kidnapping, right? It's also a word associated with the slave trade. And here's what it means. It means there's been a set payment that's required To set someone free from bondage. Set payment is required 
to set someone free from bondage. The payment is the life, the death of a perfect human being. That's the payment for your sin and my sin. And we are enslaved to our sin unless that payment is made. We're enslaved to it. And the wrath of God will come on anyone who's not been set free. What Jesus says here about himself as the king is he says, I am the one who didn't come to be served, but to serve. And the greatest way I serve is to give my life as a ransom, a payment for your freedom. My life is a payment for your freedom. We're talking about Jesus giving his life in your place. Big theological term is substitutionary atonement. It means he covered your sins with his own death. So his death and resurrection paid for your freedom from sin. Now we, we often think about salvation um, in just past and future terms. So I, I want to talk about it that way really quickly. Jesus saved you from your past. So he sets you free of the punishment for your sin. The things that you've done in this life, his ransom is sufficient to set you free from punishment of sin. The past sins are forgiven. We think of salvation in terms of our future always as well. You know, you talk about your salvation, you typically say, well, I'm going to be with God in heaven forever. And in heaven, there is no more sin. There's no more tears. There's no more dying. The, the impact, the impulse of sin is all gone. And so the salvation that comes through the ransom paid by Jesus is to set you free from the presence of sin also. The punishment of sin in your past and the presence of sin in your future. Won't it be a glorious day, church, when we don't wake up and struggle with sin? It, will anybody else say amen to that? Won't it be a glorious day when you don't wake up and, and you're not tempted by the enemy? You wake up and you, all you want to do is glorify God. That will be a glorious day in my life when I can put my sin behind me. And the promise of the cross is true. That the presence of your sin, if you're a set free slave, the presence of your sin is gone in your forever future. But the part I think we miss the most that should be most impactful with the gospel, this ransom that Jesus pays for us, is salvation in your present you know, when the Bible talks about how we are saved, it's always written in the present tense. You are being saved. It's a present perfect verb. You are being saved. And the great reality of this ransom being paid is that you're set free from the power of sin. So the punishment and the presence, but the power of sin today. You're set free where you actually can obey God. You actually can live in such a way that you honor God with your faith. You're enabled by the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. He empowers you to actually live obediently. It's the power of sin that Jesus has broken every chain. And you can actually walk in faithful obedience to Today. 
So when Jesus says he's the ransom for many, one big question for you today. It doesn't say the ransom for all. It says the ransom for many. So I just want to ask you, are you among the many? Have you been set free by the ransom that Jesus paid? And if you've not, surrender your life to Christ. Trust in His death and resurrection for your soul. Be rescued from your sin.